Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I'm here with Andy Sappy. Andy, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Great to be here. Absolutely. So Andy is a shareholder at MCF Advisors, a boutique registered investment advisor with offices in greater Cincinnati, Lexington, and Louisville, where he serves as an advisor to business owners and clients who tend to prefer long-term relationships and thoughtful decision-making. So I want to start with part of the bio, which is this registered investment advisor. I think more and more clients and, you know, prospective clients are getting smarter on the differences between a broker-dealer an RIA, a trust company, et cetera. Could you maybe break down, you know, what it means in your words to be a registered investment advisor? Yeah. And I think it might even be useful to, to go back, at least the way I like to think about it and kind of distinguishing between the three that you just mentioned, sort of wirehouse is the, maybe the common parlance for a broker dealer, registered investment advisor, and then a trust company. And if you sort of maybe go back to the early days of, um, of investing. And it was really all a wirehouse model. People had, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you had a broker and you said, hey, I want to buy a thousand shares of Procter & Gamble. Can you help me out? The broker would go execute that trade. But in effect, you were your own manager in that world. You're saying, I'm going to, in effect, in that trade, in that example, I'm going to invest X number of dollars in a large cap publicly held company. And then maybe I'm going to invest X number of dollars in some bonds or whatever, but you're overseeing all of that yourself. That's, you know, back in the, maybe the ancient history of that world. And so the broker dealer, the wirehouse grew up in that model. And that's generally where they are very, very good is 
I've got an idea and I would like, or I've got a thought and I would like you, Mr. Wirehouse person to help me execute that thought, whether it's, I like growth right now, go find me a growth fund. I like, uh, you know, dividend paying stocks, go find me some of that stuff. The, the wirehouses are really very good at that. The RIA sort of evolved in, you know, the eighties and nineties and, and really started the growth kind of exploded, I think in the early 2000s and, and the mindset sort of became for a client that just didn't want to handle all of that. There's a lot of decisions to be made. How much do I allocate to large cap growth or tech or bonds or what we would call diversifying strategies? How do I allocate all of that stuff? And then how do I implement it? Um, that's a lot of work for one person to do. Some people love to do that and that's great. Other people would prefer to focus their energies. Uh, and we, we've got a lot of business owner clients and they want to focus on their business. They don't have time to sort of figure out all of the nuances that come with it. So the RIA really evolved to oversee things in more of a holistic way and also integrate the investment strategy into a long-term financial plan. Now, I don't want to necessarily suggest that other folks can't do that. That's just how the RIA model evolved. Uh, and it's a fee-based model. So all of the compensation is coming directly from the client. There's no sort of commissions that come with it. Wirehouses will tend to have a mix of both fees and commissions. Again, now there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a little bit of a different model. And then you get into the trust world, uh, which is another example you mentioned. Those folks sort of evolve in a world of when you've got a, a a number of trusts, let's say, particularly irrevocable trusts, the administrative burden of that becomes very onerous in a world where, you know, it's one thing if you just have your, your uncle or your cousin be the trustee, but at some point that thing becomes really, really complicated and there's accounting issues, there's legal issues, there's distribution issues and trust companies evolved in a way to be able to handle all of that and take that off of the beneficiary's plate or the trustee's plate. Every one of those models, trust wirehouse, RIA, and trust company sort of go towards investments and tackle it in a different way, but they're designed fundamentally to address very different problems. So for a client who's trying to figure out what the right model is, I think it's useful to really think hard about what problem am I trying to solve as a client? It, it's easy to say, I just want the best person out there. Well, the best person may not be that depends on what your needs are. And so it's really worthwhile to think very carefully about what do you need to accomplish? And then what business model is most effective to help me accomplish that goal? Hopefully that makes sense. It, it does. And, and the situation that I see a lot when talking with other folks that are going through maybe a manager selection or transitioning mm -hmm. from firms, it very much is personality driven to your point. It's, oh, I really like this person. This firm seems great. But it, it does, your comments do make me realize that that's part of it. But the really fundamental question is, what are the incentives? What is the fee structure? What is the business behind the actual services that that firm is providing that should be really the driver of this decision-making process? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I mean, me being in the RIA world, obviously, I have a bias toward a registered investment advisory. But you know, the wirehouse world, sometimes we tend to like to knock those folks, but we do see on occasion, there will be clients that come to us and they very much want to run their own deal. And they'll, 
you know, as soon as we have a conversation with somebody and they're saying, I want you to bring me ideas and buy me, you know, X number of shares of this, and I want to sell this and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that. They're money, but we're probably not the right fit for that person. The person that we are a right fit for is somebody who wants to sort of collaborate and look at a whole financial plan, cash flow projections and everything else from now until the end of the plan. And how do the investments fit in with that? And for us to go ahead and execute, you know, in conjunction with them, that's a really good fit for us. But there's, you know, every model has sort of a right, a client that's a good fit for them. If when you get a client that's in sort of the wrong model where there tends to be tension, I think. And I'd love to hear a commentary on this concept of a hybrid RIA where, you know, they're an RIA most of the time, but they still have a BD, maybe for legacy purposes because of annuities or other products that they were offering or insurance. How should people think about that setup? I know it's kind of going away and a lot of people are dropping their BD, but they're still out there. Yeah, that's a good question. Because I think then at that point, if, if, if you're talking with somebody about that, that is a hybrid, um, I think it starts to become incumbent on the, the perspective on the client to ask that firm a lot of detailed questions about how does the dual registration work for you? Because there, you're right. There are some folks where they maintain a BD affiliation and it's like 1% of their business. Right? We were like that probably 20 years ago and it was a bunch of legacy business and it was a headache for clients to have all their annuities in one place. We weren't selling them, but they wanted to bring it over so we could oversee it. We got out of that because it became just too cumbersome. But there are folks out there like that. They've just, they've done that. And it's more of an accommodation for their clients than anything else. And there's the other extreme, which is, you know, the BD affiliation might represent 50, 60, 70% of their business. And they're getting an awful lot of commissions from annuities uh, and life insurance or whatever else it is. And there's, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to start looking at where their incentives are going to start to you. So, you know, you, uh, you may want to ask how much of your business is broker dealer related. If it, you know, five to 5% or less, maybe even 10% or less, probably not a big deal. And you're still going to want to get comfort in terms of how they make decisions so forth. But if it's 50 or 60%, and that's not really what you're looking for, you're more looking for holistic kinds of advice. And then I'd get real specific about how do you work with clients from a planning perspective, how do you make investment decisions, all those kinds of, of things. And if you start hearing an awful lot of sort of sales talk about, um, you know, why we like commission-based products, that may not be the right fit for you unless you have a very specific goal of, I want that particular commission-based product. How painful was it for you all to eventually fully drop that BD? It was liberating actually the it was painful to keep it and that was why I mean, we process wise i guess rather than uh yeah 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 emotionally from a, a process perspective it was it was not bad basically we were foregoing i think at the time it was probably 100 150 a year in revenue which was not insignificant but not but not overly painful and we had some things in place where we could still at least track these investments that we were foregoing the commission, but we could still sort of track and, and report on those investments so we could still be of help to the client. 
and facilitate as much as we could, but it wasn't too painful to drop it. It was the real pain became, you know, dealing with the compliance of on the REA side and the wirehouse side. So you've been in this business for a while and, and it's a family business for you in, in many mm-hmm. ways, correct? Um, correct. How do you think the RIA industry has changed since you've been in this world? I, I know the proliferation has been tremendous and the growth has been exponential. We talked about the shift away from the BD, more holistic fiduciary-based planning. I'd love to just hear your broad stroke commentary and what you've seen take place in the industry. I think you've been doing this for over, you know, 10 plus years now. So, yeah, I think probably the biggest gift that we've seen as an industry, and I don't know that there'd be much disagreement with this among just about anybody in our world is the, the consolidation that we're seeing There's a whole bunch of private equity firms. Now I shouldn't say now this has been going on for now. It started maybe 10 years ago and it's really accelerated over the last 10 years where private equity firms have begun to buy up, uh, folks in the RIA space um, with implications that are sometimes positive, sometimes not. And we'll find out how that works. Um, on the positive side, here's some economies of scale and, and uh, being with a larger, we are independent, by the way, we're, we're not owned by anyone, but, um, but as you get larger, there are some, you know, there's some technology investments that you're able to do uh, as you take on in, uh, new equity, there's, there's some succession issues that start to become solved. Uh, but then there's also the, you know, is the, is the personal touch still there? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. As people become more employees as opposed to sort of, you know, owner, how does that relationship with the firm or with the client change? Uh, but that, I, I kind of rambled there, but that's by far been the biggest trend is the roll up of private equity, private equity firms buying a lot of RIAs. Well, and this is perfect because I wanted to get into this. I had somebody on the the show last week who's a consultant for RIAs and boutique wealth management firms. And we talked about this and it was interesting because he, I think of it as a largely negative thing, frankly, um, that private equity has entered into the space just because I understand the economies of scale. I understand maybe the private equity investor standpoint, but for the client, I think onboarding and then ultimately what happens transactionally with that firm is problematic uh, for their own experience. But he pushed back and said that he didn't have a problem with it as long it was the as it was the right capital. Yeah, and so I th- that kind of made me rethink. Okay, well, if it's a traditional ten year private equity fund, I think that is problematic. But if it was a a large family office or a large multifamily office that had a very long time horizon. And like you said, providing these economies of scales in the back office and maybe providing more access to different alternative investments, et cetera, that's not a, a, a terrible thing. Are you seeing more of one bucket than the other within the RIA space right now? I think the jury's still out on that. Right now, I would say everybody who's positioned, all the private equity buyers are positioning themselves as we want, we're going to bring in new capital, we're going to help the, the existing owners you know, fund their buyout and bring up the second generation. That's the story. Whether that story carries that, you know, we've had a really good run for a long time in this industry. We're, of course, this year has not been the greatest from a market perspective. And so, you know, if we do see a couple of years where there's choppiness in the market and there's, there's relatively high client turnover, 
it will be interesting to see how much that story from private equity firms starts to match the reality. There's going to be an awfully big temptation if you've got, you know, 20, 30, 40 RIAs that you've rolled up and you haven't done, there's a ton of cost savings available to you as the private equity owner. If you just put everybody on the same investment platform, everybody on the same, you know, financial planning software and just start to standardize all that stuff. That's an easy, easy button to push to get a lot of cost savings, but you create a lot of disruption among all of those individual firms. And so at that point, you'd start to see potentially folks that break away from those firms and, and even more disruption. Now, on the flip side, though, if it is long-term capital and they're there, which is a much, it's a recent trend in private equity, but it's not brand new, where firms have said the LBO model of buying a firm and just leveraging the heck out of it and getting a return isn't going to work for everyone. And we're about growing firms and, and growing the value. And how can we do that using our scale and our, our checkbook? Um, that could be very good for clients. I mean, there's a lot of things in the RIA space where you could see RIAs going in, uh, making major inroads into, you know, trust companies and, and having that in-house, which would be a huge benefit to clients. Right now, it's rather cost prohibitive for a smaller firm like us to do that. Um, but to have that backing and go into more value add areas would be uh, potentially a real benefit, I think, for, for a client. This really goes back to our initial conversation of it's not so much a judgment on wrong, right, better, yeah. worse. It's these are the questions that clients should be asking, right? What does your ownership structure looks like? What does your partnership structure look like? What does your capital structure look like? And I think most people just don't feel comfortable asking, you yeah. know, their wealth manager, their financial advisor, these type of questions. Yeah. And I do think that the, you're highlighting a good point, which is, there really aren't any dumb questions when you're talking to an advisor it, uh, or a prospective advisor. It's easy to, for some folks, I think, you know, we see some folks come in and they are properly skeptical. This is a long-term relationship they're getting into. They're talking to three or four different folks and they want answers and they deserve answers. There are other folks, you know, you're coming in and you're talking about something that's not easy to talk about because you don't always have the right word. Finance, one of the reasons they're coming to us or any advisor is because they have a hard time thinking about it. They're thinking about their business or, or family or whatever else, and they don't necessarily have the language of finance. And so they're a little reluctant to ask questions because they don't want to ask the wrong question. If you're in an environment where you feel like you're kind of being looked down on for asking what you may think is a bad question, or if somebody you know, makes you feel like it's inappropriate or something, that's probably not a good fit. This is a big decision. And any question could be on the table in terms of, you know, ownership structure and all those other things, because, you know, if you're going to be, if it's a transaction, you're only going to be in it for six months. Well, maybe you don't care, but this is, this should be a 20, 30, 40 year relationship. And maybe you have to move at some point, but you'd prefer to, to not, to minimize that kind of disruption. And that means, you know, just about any questions on the table, I think. You alluded to this earlier about this demographic shift transition that we are experiencing. It feels to me like there's been a lot of conversation around this for the last 10 years, but nothing was really happening. But now it feels like it's really happening. A lot of families I know are going through this generational transition. I want to hear it first from the client perspective, then I want to talk about you as a business owner and partner. But from a client perspective, 
How are you seeing that play out in real time in terms of client expectation, client relationship, this, you know, this shift of wealth from the baby boomers to the millennials? Yeah. Um, well, that's a big one. So let's see if I can break that down and into some smaller chunks. You know, we are definitely seeing, I'd say the activity around and the questions that we're getting around estate planning has ramped up even over the last five years. We're not attorneys, but we will, you know, have lots of conversations with clients about here is maybe a broad way to think about how to transfer wealth from one generation to the next. Here's the kind of vehicles that do make sense. Here's the kind of vehicles that don't. There are certain trust vehicles that, you know, people hear lots about, but maybe they're not necessarily appropriate because their wealth is, is going to be less than, you know, the, the unified credit. So it just, it's not going to make sense for them. So having those broad discussions so that we can economize their time with attorneys and make sure that the, that the structure they're going to put in place is appropriate. We've had a lot more of those conversations just in terms of by number. So we've certainly seen that uh, from a business owner perspective, which is a, a large percentage of my client base, the number of conversations that we're having about, you know, how do I plan for an exit uh, has definitely gone up. I mean, I've, I've got one client who, and this was a first, but uh, actually two now that I think about it, I was having a conversation with them about transition, you know, when they were... 50 years old. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily that they were looking to transition in the next two or three years, but they were looking forward to, you know, I want to be out of this business by the time I'm 60 or 62. What do I need to either save from the business uh, in terms of my 401k plan or whatever else, or what kind of value do I need to get out of the business when I do transition so that I have a successful retirement? So we've certainly seen, and we, of course, with business owners that are 16 over, we've seen that's been a huge increase in just the conversational activity. What does the transition need to look like? What do I need to get out of this business? Who should I be talking to? All of those kinds of things. And, and what about your perspective as a business owner? You mentioned that you're an independent RIA. You have a partnership. Your father is involved with the business. What has mm -hmm. it been like for you personally navigating through this this shift from a business owner perspective? Yeah, it. We've been very fortunate in so our. our the chairman is, is my dad, and then there's a CEO who is completely unrelated. Um, and our CEO has been really, really active in growing second generation of, and I would be like generation one half, but we've got a lot of advisors that are, uh, or maybe generation one and a half, but we've got a lot of advisors that are relatively young and owners that are relatively young. And he, from a, from the moment I talked to him, um, did an incredible job of growing the talent within the organization so that we could be in a position to potentially, you know, buy out equity as it needs to get transition. We've had transition plans in place for, you know, we've at least been thinking about it for about 10 years, but it's taken that level of foresight to prepare people as owners, both financially and mentally to do that. That's one of the things I think that's driving a lot of these roll-ups in the industry is there are a number of, you know, call it two, three, four-person shops uh, that have done very well, have a really nice client base, but didn't really want to grow the, the business beyond that, you know, four, five, six people. There's nothing wrong with that. Then they find themselves in a position of being, 
ready to retire or at least transition. And there's just not the money in the younger generations to be able to buy them out, which is, tends to drive them toward a private equity exit. The old uh, estate plan of never dying. Just that my father-in-law, I think, shares that that sentiment. I want to shift towards kind of broader market commentary, and you know, we're we're recording this in, in the end of September of 2022. There's a lot of volatility. There's a lot of anxiety raising interest rate environment. You, you mentioned kind of a, a correction of the market, a lot of geopolitical volatility. I'd love to hear, since you interact with clients on a daily basis, what is the, the, the two or three things that are keeping folks up at night right now amongst your client base? Yeah. Um, I think in general, you know, if I were to say, take the average age of my client base, it's probably early 60s, certainly have some that are older and some that are younger, but that, that's probably on average. So retirement is on their mind. Whenever we work with a client, we go through a really extensive financial planning process. So we are, you know, from the get-go, allocating their portfolio and planning cash flows so that we know how much we're going to need to withdraw at certain times and in certain years. So we've prepared them for this for a number of years, just knowing that, you know, we want to have probably anywhere from at least five to seven years withdrawals available in bonds and, you know, mostly short-term bonds and cash. Of course, bonds has not been a great year for bonds. So a lot of our conversations this year have gone forward, you know, what's the bond market doing? Fundamentally, we've had a lot of conversations about what is the difference between a bond and a stock? You know, the bond, if you hold it to maturity, unless there's a default, um, which is really low probability in an investment grade bond, you've got you're going to get your money back. But along the way, there's going to be some bumps. The stock, there's no guarantee you're going to get your money back. It, it can obviously go to zero. That's why we need to diversify and plan for those sorts of things. So I haven't, there's generally a sense of, but back to your original question, which is how are clients feeling? There's the, I think we've done a pretty good job of preparing them for these sorts of time horizons um, or these sorts of situations. But that, that doesn't mean it feels good when it's going on. All we can do is reinforce the plan has contemplated situations like this. You've got plenty of fixed income in the portfolio to, to meet your withdrawals. And when we're looking at a 20 or 30 year time horizon or more, this is a blip, you know, maybe it lasts two or three years, maybe. Um, but in the end, this is still a blip. We're not going to have to sell these equities for a long, long time. And you're only hurting yourself if you're selling equities in a downturn. Um, but there's still, I think, just a general feeling of angst. A lot of the questions revolve around how long do you think this is going to last? Um, when, when is this going to end? Why is this happening? All those kinds of things. And it's, um, it, it, I'd love to say everybody's just great and they're, they're feeling good, but it's, there's, there's a sense of, yeah, when you've had the slow drip of a whole year of just markets going down with some ups in between, there's, yeah, there's, there's some angst say this in a positive way, there's a lot of gray hair when you look at the team members, when I will go to your website, you know, your dad included, obviously, mm -hmm. they've been through a lot of cycles, a lot of downturns. What are you hearing from them? I assume that they're a really valuable resource to have on the bench during a time like this. Yeah, I'd say not only from them, but also, you know, we we do have some clients that are 
really high net worth that um, it's helpful to see their perspective as well. But they look at these downturns almost not in a positive way because you're never feeling great when your clients are feeling, you know, anxious, but as really good buying opportunities. And we've got a number of clients who are put in, you know, orders to say on a pullback of this, we want to be buying X amount of, of something uh, just because we, we've been holding in cash. And when there's a pullback, we're going to buy in. Now that's, that's a small percentage of clients, but that sort of attitude, I think is useful to see, um, to see this as an opportunity, not necessarily just something that you have to sit back and, and experience as opposed to be able to, you can be proactive about it and, and really leave yourself in a good position three, four, five years from now. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club Podcast for more information and to sign up today. Yeah, I mean, I think that's helpful. And part of the reason that, you know, firms like yours, I think will do a long-term is this, you know, guiding hand type holistic approach. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned estate planning, wealth planning, tax. You obviously can't give that advice directly, but it, it does seem like in a moment like this, it's really helpful to understand the full picture of somebody's household network or business plan, operating company, et cetera. Whereas maybe just a BD who's running a separately managed account for you, buying and yeah. selling. It's just a different experience. And, and I think given what we're about to enter into, in my opinion, firms like yours are, are, are well positioned. Well, it is going back to the planning that we do. There's a, a module in our planning software where we will run a simulation of, you know, market goes up, market goes down. It'll run a thousand different trials of various market conditions. And what it does in effect is act as a stress test on the portfolio to say, Mr. and Mrs. Client, here's what you want to withdraw over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Here's what we expect you to be needing to withdraw to fund your retirement according to the standard of living that you're accustomed to. And under all of these various circumstances, uh, market circumstances, are you able to pull out the money you want to pull out of the portfolio uh, and still have money left over before you die? So, you know, when we can run those kinds of simulations and see results that are 90% probability of success, 85, 95, 100, where everything looks really good, even though it's contemplating a market like we're in now, that does add a lot of comfort because clients can start to see, okay, um, that's, that's all comprehended in the plan. And I, now they've got a view that 30 or 40 years down the road, instead of just getting locked into this, oh my gosh, the market's going to zero and the world is going to end. It, it, it does add a little bit of perspective to the process. So you're right. Being able to see all of those assets, even if we're not managing them, just to see them and incorporate those into the plan, I think adds a lot of comfort. And that was, we sort of, we got really good at that leading into 2008, 2009 as a firm, because we just didn't know how to manage money unless it's in the context of a plan. I mean, you just, you have to integrate the portfolio with what the withdrawal strategy is or you're 
you're just not being as holistic as you could be. And in doing that in 08, 09, we were able to keep a lot of folks invested at times when they were inclined to pull out. And of course, three, four years later, you know, the market, they were up much further, much more than they would have been had they, you know, just sort of panicked and pulled out. I've mentioned this on the show before, but it just really strikes home to me, this concept that volatility does not equal from the loss of capital, right? Unless yeah. you trade, unless you trade out of that position and if you can withstand that volatility, you know, long-term the market will perform. Yeah. And it, um, I like to use the analogy of a house just because everybody, almost everybody owns a house and, you know, very few people, unless you're going to sell your house in the next one or two years, very few, few people monitor the market and say, oh, geez, you know, my house is worth 10% less this year than it was last year. Cause you're thinking I'm going to be in this house for the next 20, 30, 40 years, or at least 10 or 15 years. So you're just not paying attention until you get close. But it's harder to do that. If, if you were looking at your house value every single day, it would be adjusting just like the market does. And most of those equities, you're not going to sell for another 10, 20, 30 years. At least if, if you're allocated properly, you're going to be drawing money out of those bonds. So you're right. You really haven't recognized the gain or a loss until you've actually, you know, sold the security. So before we wrap up here, I want to bring it again to high level. There's a lot of talk about railroad advisors, the democratization of access to alternatives, the shift from baby boomer to millennial, um, holistic wealth planning. There's a lot happening with your industry. What are some trends or topics that maybe don't hit the headlines that people should be aware of or that you're seeing or feeling in your business? Yeah, I think we hit on probably a big one with the, the roll-up. And that's one thing that you just don't see a lot of in the headlines. In terms of advisory-related, I think the robo-advisor, that's been around for a while now. But it, I do think what we're going to start to, the real opportunity there, we're in the very early stages of this, infantile stages, are to be able to use AI to start spotting planning opportunities. So there's a whole bunch of firms like ours who do really extensive planning, but it's still an awful lot of manual. You know, you've got to have somebody like me looking at a plan and starting to spot, okay, we're going to have big withdrawals this year out of your required minimum distributions. How can we plan in advance for that so that you're not getting exorbitantly taxed and maybe do a, a Roth conversion or something like that? There's still a lot of fundamentally an algorithmic process, but it still requires a human to look at those plans. Uh, there's an awful lot of opportunities, I think, down the road for businesses to come in uh, and look at, not businesses, but software to come in and evaluate a plan and start spotting things on an automated basis rather than relying on a, on a human being to look at those plans. And, you know, if somebody's just having a bad day or misses it, then you've maybe missed an opportunity. But I read in your bio that you have four daughters. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. 23 months apart. Yeah. So four, four daughters, uh, you know, very involved with this growing business in a time of a lot of market volatility. I'm sure you're getting a lot of phone calls from clients. Is there something in your daily practice that you try to, to do to, to bring yourself a little bit of peace? No, I, I think. Daily practice, I'm not so sure. I'd, I'd like to say I'm better at that. I, I think the peace usually comes on the weekends when I'm going to various games and so forth and, and getting to watch them do, spend time with them and, and 
you know, watch them do sports or whatever activities that they're into and sit down and connect with other parents who are watching games and that kind of thing. That probably is, is right now where I get most of it. But, uh, but yeah, so. That's usually the last question, but I've got a bonus one for you since this is kind of the beginning of the meat of football season. Bengals have been a little bit up and down out of the mm-hmm. gate so far. Do you think they're going to be able to to repeat and, and make it to the Super Bowl? Yeah, I'm I'm a little worried about Buffalo in the AFC, <laughs> and uh, and I'm very worried about Kansas City. So I Titans um, don't seem to be much of a threat this year, so I don't think you have to worry about them. Yeah, I what the, I don't know what happened to the Titans. I, I kind of you know after last year, I thought they're they're going to be there again. Yeah, I'm I'm forgetting that I'm talking to a, a talking to Titans country. That was everybody in Cincinnati last year was just. We won that first playoff game and thought, oh, that's great. We won a playoff game for the first time in 100 years. And then we're just going to lose to Tennessee, and that'll be that. And then somehow they beat Tennessee, and somehow they beat Kansas City. And mm-hmm. the whole city was just on fire. I think if we get our offensive line straightened out, we've got an awful lot of weapons. The defense is pretty solid. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of tough competition in the AFC. So um, we'll see. Yeah, spoken like a, a fan who's been through the ringer a couple times. <laughs> Yeah, a lot. Andy, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It was really fun. And uh, for our listeners, please do leave us a review. Let us know your favorite part of today's episode. And, and Andy, if, if folks are interested in connecting with you, to learn more about the firm, the work you all are doing, uh, what's the best way for them to get engaged? Uh, I, I think just an email, uh, asathe, which is A-S-A-T-H-E at M-C-F Advisors. Amazon, Mary, Sears, and Charlie, F is in Frank, advisors.com. We're not so busy that we, you know, can't respond to an old-fashioned email. So uh, that, I think that works best. Well, Andy, thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.